We're in part seven, uh, almost at the end of this series on praying with Paul. We're going to be in Romans chapter 15 this morning. So if you would go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. We're going to be talking about praying for ministry. And I know that's one of those titles that you hear and think, wow, this really has nothing to do with me. It does. And it's my job today to help you to see how this has everything to do with each and every one of us, not just myself, who's, who's a, a pastor or, or a missionary, as we talked about the Doyle family earlier. And you know, one of the things I love about short-term mission trips, yes, you get to see other countries, which is phenomenal. You get to see God's work in other countries and the things that God is doing in Christians around the world. But one of the things I love to see is people in the church, especially teenagers, but anybody, see missionaries in action. Because I think we have this stereotype of the missionary, you know, maybe with the machete going out into the the jungle somewhere and, and living in a hut and translating scripture and, and learning a language and proclaiming the gospel. And certainly in many places, it does look like that. But one of the things you learn as you go on short-term mission trips is that there is no such thing as a picture of a missionary. Every missionary is different. Every mission field is different. Every mission's family is different. Every need, every opportunity in the country is different. And one of the things I see often when we take a a team somewhere is they look at the missionary family and they say, man, I, I never knew that missionaries did that. They're just using who they are in this place and in this country. Well, if they can do that here, can't I use who God has made me where I'm at? Or maybe to even go to a different country and use the skills that God has given me there. And so their picture of ministry is broadened so much bigger. And I love to see that. And that's what we're going to be talking about today when we look at praying for ministry. It's an interesting prayer. In other prayers that we've looked at of Paul's, it's usually Paul praying for someone. This one is unique because it's actually Paul requesting prayer for himself. And he's about to embark on a new journey in his missionary journeys. He's going back to Jerusalem and he's asking for prayer from the Roman Christians because he knows some difficult things lie ahead. So let's read the passage. I'll put it up here on the screen or you can follow along in your Bibles. Starting in chapter 15, Romans 15, starting in verse 30. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. I pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. He starts off by talking about this idea of the Roman Christians joining with him in the struggle of ministry. And I want to just take a moment and talk about what is ministry. Because I think as people today, we have a concept of ministry as something that a professional does, something that we hire somebody to come on staff. We're about to hire an associate pastor. Obviously, I am employed by the church. I am a professional minister, if you will. But if we stop there, and that's our definition of what a minister is, we're going to miss out on so much incredible truth of Scripture. Because in Scripture, if you are a Christian, you are a minister. 
You are called to serve. Now, that doesn't mean that you've got to drop everything that you're doing, set up camp somewhere else, or get an office in a church and start working out there. It means wherever you are, whether it's a factory or an office or a home or a school, in that environment, you have been called to be a minister. I think you could also change that and say you've been called to be a missionary. You're called to go into that place and take the gospel in word and in deed. Matthew 28, 18 through 19, the Great Commission says this, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This was to the disciples their marching orders. Before Jesus ascended back into heaven, this is one of the last things he told them. As you are going, and that's what it means when it says, therefore go. In the Greek, there's an assumption. You're already going. You're already walking. As you are going, take the gospel. Make disciples. A disciple is someone who's accepted Christ as their Savior, and they are following him in their lives. So it's not just make a convert. It's not just present the gospel and check a box saying, yep, another person accepted Christ today. It's help them to grow in that as you are going. Paul was a great demonstration of this. Wherever he went, preached the gospel, people got saved, and then he invited them to come along in ministry with him. And he raised up elders and discipled them and turned over the church to them. And it was this ongoing process of discipleship. But you might say, well, wait a minute, this was... To the apostles. I mean, that's what they were supposed to do. Okay. First Peter four ten through eleven. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to what? Serve others. I would say that's a pretty good definition of a minister. Serving others for the sake of the gospel, using whatever God has given you. Should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. And I love that picture of wherever you are, you are to live as a minister. You are to live as a missionary. You are to speak, being very careful, thinking about your words and the impact of your words. You know, in our membership covenant as a church, and at the end of this service, we're going to have a group of people join as members. Maybe you've seen that. But we have a covenant. It's just a promise that we make together. And our purpose statement is to make and become fully devoted followers of Christ. And so in section three, letter B, it says, we promise to do this by being missionaries for the gospel in every situation of our lives and seeking to tell others about the incredible gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, do any of us do that perfectly? No. No way. We intentionally set that high because I believe that is the call of Jesus. Therefore, go and make disciples. But we understand we fall short of that. But it hopefully gets in our head this idea that wherever I am, I have been called by God to minister. All are called to ministry. All are called to use whatever God has given us for his purposes, his will, his glory. 
So Paul talks about this source and this motivation for ministry in chapter, or I'm sorry, in verse 30. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. It's really interesting. In this verse, he references the whole Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He starts by urging them by our Lord Jesus Christ. To Paul, and I hope to us, the gospel defines us. It's what we are. We are people, sinners, saved by God's grace, which was displayed and accomplished on the cross when our sin was put on God's Son and He died in our place. And then He rose on the third day, conquering sin and death. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And it then becomes our identity. We are sinners saved by grace. That's who we are. We are not people that have really good ideas that get together just to work out those ideas. We are not people that just have phenomenal plans and strategies and we get together to do that. We are not a social club of people that like the same music or the same style or the same building or the same traditions and we get together to live that out. That's not what the church is. We are people shaped by Jesus Christ and by his salvation. And so Paul appeals to them in that saying, because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done in your life, pray for me. But then he takes it a step further. And he says, by the love of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's presence dwelling in us. It is promised in Scripture when we become a Christian, God puts his very presence right in our heart, in our lives, and from the inside out, God's presence is renewing us, remaking us, recreating us, rooting out those areas of sin that we hold on to and say, oh no, God, don't touch that. And God says, oh yes, I'm going to go there because I love you too much to leave that part of your life untouched. I have something better for you. And the Holy Spirit is at work in us. And so Paul appeals to them and says, because you love Jesus as I love Jesus, because the Holy Spirit is at work in you as the Holy Spirit is at work in me. And then he says, I'm going to pray and I'm asking you to pray to God for me. And this is God the Father. And in Scripture, God the Father is sovereign. He is ruler of heaven and earth. He has a plan from the beginning to end and nothing can or ever will thwart that plan. And so here Paul is appealing to this big understanding of who they are in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Man, if we could start our prayers with that kind of a foundation, instead of just, oh my goodness, God, I'm in in really big trouble right now. If you could just help me, there's time for that. But if we could start with, I'm in trouble, but God, you're Lord of heaven and earth. You sent your Son to die on the cross for me, and your Spirit is dwelling within me, and you are sovereign over all things. Well, wouldn't that change our prayer? And then wouldn't it unite us with other people to say, hey, that God that I claim, that's your God too? It was a great thing in Nicaragua to be able to be with these people I couldn't even communicate with, but to know they're saved by the same cross. They believe in the same gospel. Their identity is more in line with my identity than our unsaved friends here in the United States of America, even though I couldn't communicate with them. And boy, I look forward to a day in heaven when I can communicate with them. And hopefully, maybe even before that, but that would take a lot of faith for me to learn Spanish. We'll see. But the identity shaped by the gospel is what joins Christians together and forms that common bond and that foundation upon which we can then ask each other to pray. And hopefully in love say, I want to pray. I want to support you. I want to, as Paul says, struggle 
with you in prayer. So why is this a struggle? He says in verse 31, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 30, he says, join with me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Why is this a struggle? Living for God in any situation, in any setting, is not easy. Serving others in the hope and in the means of the gospel is not easy. Oh, it sounds great. I'm just going to live for Christ and everything will be great. Everything will work out and God will work out everything for me. That's often not the way it happens. And you're going to see that as we go through this passage. At the end, you're going to see in many ways that's not the result of this prayer for Paul. Paul's life did not turn out the way he was requesting prayer for it to turn out in this passage. Paul knew the struggle of ministry. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 28. Listen to how Paul has described the overwhelming joys of his ministry. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Doesn't it just read like, like a brochure trying to get people to sign up for ministry? Don't you just listen to that and go, I, sign me up. This is great. We shared a little bit earlier about going to La Concha, this village up in the mountains outside of Managua in Nicaragua, and we picked up the church planner, Luis, along the way, and Dan Doyle, the missionary, started translating for us, and he started telling us about the time that guys with machetes came and said they were going to chop off his hands if he didn't leave the town. He was telling us about the threats to his life and to the family and to the property, and we're driving up to the village, and I'm thinking, man, I did not need to hear this right now. This is not... You wait till after the visit to say these things. Fortunately, as the story went on, there was also the things have changed greatly. The, the, the police in the town had really done a 180 and supported the church and supported the work, uh, so much so that some of his accusers had to go to a city next door to get police when they wanted to get him arrested on these trumped-up charges. Ministry's tough. And our brother, Luis, the church planner in La Concha, he knows it. Paul knew it. Some of you know it as well. Just reaching out to friends and family, just trying to live for Christ in your settings, in your places of work or your schools, it's hard, isn't it? And we need to hear the call that we need to struggle together. And it's interesting that sometimes struggling together means a team goes somewhere and we work together and we do things together. Sometimes struggling together means I can't come into your environment. I can't come where you are and God has called you to serve. I can't be there to help you, but I can pray for you. You can't come and do some of the things I do, but you can pray for me. We can't expect everybody to do the exact same things, but we can struggle with each other through prayer and struggle for one another in prayer. And that's exactly what Paul is asking for. And he identifies two particular struggles as he anticipates this trip to Jerusalem. Now, let me just explain here what Paul's going to do. 
Throughout Paul's ministry, as he traveled around the Roman world, he planted churches, he shared the gospel, he raised up elders. But another thing he did was he took a collection. Sometimes this was Paul needing to support his own means, but more than likely, it was usually because he had a heart for the people back in Jerusalem. The Jewish Christians that had sent him out, that were really the the founding believers in the church, were struggling greatly. Famine and political oppression had come into Jerusalem, and the, the Jewish Christians were really, really hurting. And Paul had this idea, I think it was given to him by God, to travel to churches, raise money, bring this collection back to Jerusalem to help the brothers and sisters there. And it was a beautiful way of uniting these churches that were spread across so many miles and spread among two very different cultures to say, let's support one another. And so Paul now, at this point in his ministry, he's going to go back to Jerusalem. He wants to give them the money that he's collected. And then he says at the beginning, or if you back up to verse 23 of Romans 15, he shares some of his plans. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, that's the Christians in Rome, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in service of the Lord's people there. So Paul had this mission. He had a plan. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to give them the money, and then I'll travel to Rome. And it seems that he wanted to use Rome as a new base of operation to travel into Spain and start a new ministry work there among people that he had never met. Things didn't quite turn out that way, as far as we can tell from history. But as Paul's going back to Jerusalem, he sees that he's going to have some struggles. And so he starts by saying, Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea. As we seek to live for Christ, as we seek to share the gospel with others, we need to understand that often our struggle will, be, will come from people in the world who don't know Jesus. They're not going to understand They're not going to appreciate. They're not going to lovingly just say, oh, good for you, that's wonderful, you believe. Some do, but some will say, how dare you? Who do you think you are? You're so arrogant that you would believe that you're saved. How could you possibly say that some people go to hell and some people go to heaven? Who do you think you are? A lot of our struggles come from people in the world who have never accepted Jesus Christ. Paul knew that there were people in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area that wanted to kill him. He knew that. He knew that, yet he was still planning to go there because he was called to go there. He needed to go. We will face struggles from people who don't believe in Christ. And there's several reasons for this. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The truth is, the world cannot, apart from God's grace and opening their eyes and the Spirit's work in their life, they can't understand the gospel. They're not going to understand our faith. It always amazes me when as Christians we're so shocked that the world doesn't accept what we believe, when the Bible actually promises they can't. They can't get it. So we should not be shocked at that. Is it hard? Yes. Is it a surprise? No. 
And so as we live and as we reach out to people, we should anticipate the struggle. We should expect the struggle. And therefore, like Paul, we should be driven to prayer for ourselves and for one another as we interact in those struggles. So the world cannot, apart from Christ, understand the gospel. But the other thing is the world often doesn't want to understand the gospel. They don't want to hear it. The gospel says we're sinners who are unable to save ourselves. The modern person who sees themselves as so self-sufficient, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, if they set their mind to it, they can do anything they want to accomplish. They don't want to hear that. It's offensive. Sometimes we don't want to hear it because it's offensive to say, I'm a sinner. I need Christ. I cannot do this myself. The gospel also says we must give up control of our lives to Jesus Christ. In the gospels it said, take up your cross and follow me. We give up control of our life. We count ourselves as dead and only alive in Jesus Christ. He is our Lord, our Savior, our Master. We follow him. Well, Americans don't like that idea, do we? The concept of laying down freedoms, the concept of giving up freedoms. No, you don't lay down freedoms. You fight for freedoms. And the Bible says no. You actually fight to give up your freedom. You fight to lay down that selfishness. You fight to give up that control. It's the fight of faith to say, I don't want it. I'm not good at that. I want God to control me. I want to trust Him. And it's offensive to the world. But you know what? God reaches through that. And as we minister, even in those struggles, even in those supernatural struggles of people whose minds cannot understand the gospel, God will use your feeble attempts and your words, and your actions to open their minds. i got to tell you, yesterday at the funeral, it, it was tough for me. I'll be honest with you. We had two interviews with associate pastors in the morning, and then we got the funeral in there, and you know, trying to work around the family schedule. And I hate running from one thing to the next, because especially at a funeral, I want to be here with the family. I just want to hang out with them. But we're trying to finish up the, the, uh, the interviews in my office on Skype, and I'm running home and putting on my suit and scarfing down a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, which is hard because it sticks. And then I'm running back. <laughs> and I'm running back, and the family's already here, and I'm trying to get everything in order. And they wanted to show, uh, or there was a, a song. Brittany sang Ave Maria. Oh, my goodness, it was beautiful. I couldn't believe she made it through uh, Ave Maria for her grandpa. And so we're trying to get everything to work. And it, I'm just frazzled. And it, there are times as a pastor, you just go, this is not the way I wanted this to go. I, I, this is not how I would have planned it. I, I wanted to just peacefully be with the family and pray with them. And that's just not the way it turned out. After the service, I had a, a father come up to me. And he said, my, my young adult son, he's, he's been struggling in his faith. And he told me that some of the things you said really challenged him. And he's going to go home and read that passage you preached on. Two seconds later, that son walked up to me and said the exact same thing. And I thought, that's God. That's the struggle of ministry where God opens somebody's eyes and shows them something we can't do. I can't claim that. I wasn't ready for that. I was trying to do the best I could, but God uses our feeble efforts. So although it's a difficulty and although it's a struggle, don't ever give up. And because it's a struggle, pray for one another and ask for prayer. But Paul also asked for prayer regarding another group of people that may surprise us. Look at the end of verse 31. He says this. So he says, Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea. That's those outside 
the church, but then he says, and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there. Who's the other group that he's afraid might give a problem to him? Christians. He's worried that those in the church are going to have a hard time with what he's doing. Now, this is very, very interesting and might seem unexpected. But Paul is concerned that those in the church might struggle to accept him. Well, why? Frankly, because of his history. Things didn't always go well for Paul in Jerusalem. The Jews saw him as a traitor because he had left their ranks. He had left them as a teacher and a religious teacher of the law, and he had become a Christian. The Christians often saw him as suspect because he had previously brought Christians and put them in jail and even had them put to death. So he had a lot of people in Jerusalem who didn't like him. It was a struggle. The other reason it was a struggle is that Paul's ministry was to go to the Gentiles, and the Jewish Christians struggled with that. They were God's holy people. They were the Jewish people. And the Gentiles were always those other people. They were to stay on the outside. And Paul said, no, Christ is reaching out to them. He knew it was important. But I think one of the reasons specifically is that Paul was collecting money from the Gentiles. You see, in the Jewish mindset, there was this concept of clean and unclean. And the Jewish people and their laws and their traditions, that's what made you clean. And those Gentiles, the rest of the world was unclean. And there was always to be this separation between clean and unclean. And what if, when Paul came back to deliver this money from the Gentile Christians, what if the Jewish Christians said, no, we can't accept that, it's unclean? What would that have done to the church of Jesus Christ? It would have split it in two would have absolutely fractured the church into Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians that wanted nothing to do with each other. And I believe that was heavily on Paul's mind. It was heavily on his heart. This was a pivotal moment for the church of Jesus Christ. And if it didn't go well, some really bad things could happen. So he asked for prayer. The ugly truth is that some of the greatest struggles in ministry come from those inside the church. I've been a pastor now for over 15 years. Something like that. (laughs) Looking at my wife or checking my math. I I will tell you my greatest struggles in ministry have always come from those inside the church. That's not to say people in the church are horrible, awful people. It's to say we're a bunch of sinners. And some of those struggles in the church were my own dumb fault. It was my own sin coming out. Some of the struggles in the church were other people's sin coming out. Sometimes, usually, it was some sort of a mix of the two. But that's the way it happens. We have struggles in the church because we're all sinners. We all have wrong ideas. We're messed up. Even in our understanding and interpretation and application of Scripture, we're wrong often because our sin infects us. It infuses our thinking. We all have wrong actions. Even if we can interpret Scripture perfectly, we don't always live it out perfectly. And my imperfection and your imperfection can tend to overlap and suddenly we have a struggle. Even if we have right ideas and right actions, we can often have wrong motives. So as we're seeking to apply these things, instead of doing it in love and affection and, and for the sake of the gospel, it's always a one, it can be a one-upmanship. I'm better than you. My argument's better than you. And so on and so forth. Because of this, we need to, in the church, show love and grace. This is a huge theme of Paul's prayers. As we've walked through this, I hope you've seen it over and over and over again. He prays that Christians would love each other. 
Why? Because we're a bunch of messed up sinners called to demonstrate the glory of God. And man, if we can't do that in love, we can't do it. We need to show love to one another. I'm going to talk more about that next week as we close the series. I've found that the more you try to serve Christ, the more other Christians, unfortunately, will criticize you. Because you're not doing it their way. You're not highlighting the things they think are important. And I don't know if you found that to be true in your life, but you might. I think Paul certainly did. But I think Paul's example is very telling for us. Keep going. And as we keep going, we need to do two things. We need to take it to heart. When a Christian brother or sister criticizes us, we need to hear it. We need to take it to heart and say, maybe there's a rebuke in there I need to hear because I am a sinner. Don't just ignore it. Hear the rebuke. And then we need to continue to serve. It's easy to get deflated. It's easy to get the wind just completely taken out of your sails and say, oh, it's hard. Why bother? It's hard, so dig in and pray and struggle because God is bigger and He is stronger than what you're going through. Living a life of ministry is a struggle. We can join in this struggle with each other and help through prayer. But as we do this, we also need to admit that sometimes God doesn't answer prayer the way we think he will. And I know we're going long, but this is the shortest point, so stick with me. Struggle together with me. Look at verses 32 and 33. He says, So that I may come to you with joy and by God's will, and in your company be refreshed, and the God of peace will be with you all. Amen. That's Paul's hoped-for outcome. He wants to be able to move on from Jerusalem after delivering the money and go to Rome. History is not exactly clear on some of the details of Paul's ministry after this and what happened in Rome and where he went from Rome. But by and large, most scholars believe he never made it to Spain. It's possible he went, but even if he did, he didn't go the way he thought he was going to go, or I think the way he would have chosen to go. Things did not go well for him in Jerusalem. God did not answer the prayer the way that Paul had asked. He was not kept protected from these people. In fact, he was imprisoned by them. He was thrown into prison in Jerusalem. He was falsely accused of many things. He ended up carried to Rome as a prisoner. He remained in Rome for some time. It was in Roman imprisonment that he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. But you know what's interesting? If you look at the very last verse of this prayer, verse 33, it says, The God of peace will be with you all. That's Paul's ultimate prayer, that God's will would be done. God's peace would be proclaimed and brought. Listen to Philippians 1, 12, or you can read it up there, 12 through 14, that Paul penned as he was sitting in Rome in jail. He says this. I'll read it up there. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Think of that actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has been clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Things did not go, in one sense, the way Paul hoped. The trip to Rome was a lot rougher than he would have asked for, I believe. And yet things went exactly the way He did hope because God was glorified and the gospel was proclaimed. And when we make that our prayer, 
And that must be our prayer. We must understand that God's will and God's plan is best. And that's ultimately what we need to pray for. Living a life of ministry is a struggle in any situation. We're called to join with each other in this struggle. And one of the key ways we can do that is by lifting one another up in prayer. Pray for one another. Share prayer requests for one another. And all the while understand that God will answer our prayers according to His will, not ours. And hopefully that's actually our greatest desire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, what a fitting day to talk about this as we've looked at the the slides and the reports from Nicaragua and the ministry that happened there and the ongoing ministry that's going on even today as our brothers and sisters in Christ are sitting out on those plastic chairs in that open field in the baking hot sun and they are worshiping you. We thank you that they are in Christ as we are in Christ. You are their God just as we as you are our God. And so, Father, we struggle with them. We're not there with us with them now, but we struggle on their behalf and we pray for them. I pray for Pastor Luis. I pray for Pastor Marco. I pray that you would lift them up and encourage them in the struggles they're going through. Pray for Dan and Arena and the girls as they are missionaries there. Bless them, Father. I pray for each one in this congregation as we struggle together. May we see ourselves as in ministry together in every situation. We thank you that your peace and your will prevails in the midst of this struggle. In your name we pray. Amen.